Christmas is going to be different this year, isn't it? Right, if, if Thanksgiving was any indication, then surely Christmas will follow in the same footsteps. Our homes will be a little more empty. Uh, beloved family members won't make it in from out of state. And even at church, we may still be split up, not being able to be together. And even that, right, has a little bit of its services are a little bit more of a downer. The Christmas spirit, as all things this year, will be dampened by the spreading pandemic and the rolling lockdowns. And, you know, just to be honest, right, just to face it for what it is, it's quite a sad state of affairs. And yet for some of us, a melancholy Christmas is nothing new. The rest of us are just catching up to your experience. A season that revolves around family gatherings and celebration brings with it, for many, hard memories of loss and a creeping sense of loneliness. But why foreground these depressing realities at the outset of our message? It's Christmas time. This is supposed to be about joy. The reason I bring these up is because I believe our current situation presents us with the opportunity to celebrate the arrival and return of Jesus Christ in a a unique way. Advent, the season which we're celebrating, means, it's it's a Latin word, and all it means is arrival or coming. And it's all about celebration on the one hand and longing on the other. On one hand, we look back and celebrate the arrival of Jesus Christ. And on the other, we look forward and long for His return. Thus, caught between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ, Advent is a time of great celebration, looking back, and great longing, looking forward. And where in times past... We've looked back and done much celebrating. This year, with its unique circumstances, calls for us to look forward and to do much longing. And so therefore, rather than avoiding or papering over the feeling that things are not all as they should be, Advent, this time, is a time to lean into those feelings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said... The celebration of Advent is only possible is possible only to those troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, who look forward to something greater to come. The Advent celebration, looking back to Christ, looking forward to his return, is only possible to those who long for something greater. And if Advent is about looking ahead for something greater, what better opportunity than this, as the meagerness and the hollowness of this season under coronavirus greets us, it's a reminder that there's something more that we look for, ultimately, the kingdom of God. And so with that, I want to turn to our passage this morning. It's the traditional Christmas story, but in an apocalyptic register. There's a mother, a child, and a miraculous birth, all the familiar elements, but given to us in the most cosmic 
and unusual of terms. Instead of a humble virgin, we are given an exalted queen. Instead of a manger, we're placed in heaven. Instead of King Herod, we see a great dragon. It's Christmas as told by John the Revelator. He says, Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, in its most literal sense, the cosmic woman clothed with the glory of heaven is the physical mother of Jesus. The initial movements of chapter 12 map onto her experience almost perfectly. Mary, again the cosmic woman, gives birth to Jesus, the child of Revelation 12, and Herod, the dragon, tries to devour him. Right? We know that Herod slaughtered all the children under three years of age, all the male children, to try to get Jesus. And fleeing from Herod's wrath, Mary escapes to Egypt, in this case, the wilderness, for safety. So you see the correspondence between what happens in Revelation 12 and the initial moments of Jesus' life. But that's where correspondence to Mary's experience ends. If we pay closer attention to the symbolism, we find that the cosmic woman, although she is Mary, she is more than Mary. Her heavenly garments are not incidental. In fact, they indicate her identity. The cosmic woman is also the nation Israel. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph had a dream in which he saw the sun and the moon and the 11, and 11 stars bowing before him, the 12th star. And naturally, he told his father Jacob about the dream, and Jacob rebuked him, saying, What is this dream you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves before, before you down to the ground? According to Joseph's dream, in Jacob's interpretation, the son is Jacob, The moon is Rachel, and the stars symbolize their twelve sons. And together, they symbolize the entire nation of Israel. It's not a coincidence, then, that the cosmic woman is clothed in the sun, that she's decked with the crown of twelve stars, and that her feet are resting on the moon. She is Mother Israel carrying a child. And her pregnancy, too, is no coincidence. Many times in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is portrayed as a woman in labor. The prophet Isaiah testifies, Isaiah chapter 26, verses 17 and 18. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were the inhabitants of the world born. And so the nation, as Isaiah depicts it, is a woman laboring to bring forth salvation for the world. She cries out and rise in pain, but despite all her efforts, 
she gives birth to wind. And similar imagery, uh, mother in labor, is found in the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Micah, and the prophet Hosea. John, when he depicts the nation Israel as this heavenly mother, this heavenly woman, is not engaging in symbolic novelty, but he's drawing on deep wells of prophetic imagery. He's following in the footsteps of his forefathers, the prophets. And consider the nation's history. If you go back to every major turning point in Israel's history, you will find a miraculous birth. A pregnant mother and an infant child brought into the world through the promise of God. Israel's history is the history of one miraculous birth after another. I like the way one author put it. He said, pregnancy and childbirth are the means by which God's promises promise makes its way through the crooked course of history. And it begins with Abraham and Sarah. They, as you well know, were well past the age of childbearing. Yet God promised them that they would have a family, and that through their family, all the other families of the earth would be blessed. And the promise was so unbelievable when God told them that Sarah laughed. But later, when she had given birth in her old age, she named the child Laughter, Isaac. She could hardly believe it, but it was true. She had given birth to the promise. The next turning point in Israel's history is the birth of Moses. And although Moses' conception was not miraculous, his infancy was marked by a miraculous escape from danger. He slipped through the murderous hands of Pharaoh. Moses was set adrift on a basket in the Nile. And then he was later found and adopted by an Egyptian princess. Moses was the miraculous child who would lead Israel into the promised land. And later, when Israel was in the promised land, before the monarchy had been established, God ruled the nation through judges. And the greatest of the judges was Samson. And his story begins with yet another miraculous birth. Samson's mother was unable to conceive But she was visited by the angel of the Lord who told her that she would give birth to a child. And this child would be a savior to the nation and would deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. And after the judges came the age of the prophets and kings. And that age began began with a woman named Hannah. Grieving and praying in the temple because she could not have children. Yet God answered her prayer. She became miraculously pregnant, and her child Samuel would grow up to become one of Israel's greatest prophets. It would be Samuel who would usher in Israel's golden age under King David and King Solomon. And later on in the nation's history, when Israel was taken from the promised land and brought into captivity in Babylon, it was their darkest hour of history, but out of The depths of their despair, the promise of God was heard once again, this time through the prophet Isaiah. The prophet compared the coming deliverance to the joy of a miraculous pregnancy. He says, Isaiah 54 verses 1 through 3 and then verse 13, Shout for joy, 
O barren woman, you who have no child. Break forth in joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, spare not, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations and will resettle the desolate cities. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. It's as if in exile, Israel had been like a poor woman in a small tent with room only for herself. But God's promise deliverance has come. Has come. It's time, the prophet says, to stretch out the tent, to lengthen the cords, to spread out the pegs. Spare no expense because the desolate one will become the mother of many children. It's hardly a surprise then that Israel's story comes to a completion with the most miraculous birth of all, the virgin birth. The lowly Mary, like all these women before her, Sarah and Hannah, responds to God's promise in joy and bears that promise into the world in her own body. Thus, we might imagine Israel's history, all of it, as one long process of conception pregnancy, and delivery. The nation Israel is a mother bringing her child to term. Of course, her child is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the heavenly woman, clothed with the sun, crowned with the stars, and the moon under her feet is Israel. She's Yahweh's bride, the mother of Christ, who is ready to give birth to salvation. Now, we've identified this cosmic woman as the nation Israel, but let's Take a closer look at verse 2. It reads, And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. So, the Apostle John introduces the cosmic mother, but he draws our attention in particular to the fact that childbirth is imminent. The Christ is at the door. Now, most scholars agree The mother's labor pains are symbolic for Israel's, and I quote, long and often turbulent history that prepared the way for Jesus' arrival. In fact, the Holy Scriptures often employ uh, labor pain as a metaphor for suffering and persecution. As the Lord tells his disciples in John chapter 6, verses 20 through 22, Truly I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and, you, and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Thus, the mother's labor pains speak to the dramatic and often turbulent turbulent events that preceded the birth of Jesus Christ. The Babylonian exile, 
the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Roman occupation, etc. The nearer the Christ came, the more violent the contractions grew. As one poem depicts it, He will come, will come, will come like crying in the night, like blood, like breaking, as the earth writhes to toss him free. He will come like child. Therefore, the Apostle John pictures the heavenly woman crying out in pain. And the intensity of the picture, a mother writhing and tossing in agony, is not lost on us. It vividly portrays Israel's anguish and longing for deliverance. Long had she writhed under the power of sin. Long had she suffered under foreign empires. Long had her whimpers fallen on deaf, or deaf ears. As the scripture says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And Israel's labor pains, her heartache is beautifully captured in some of our best Christmas hymns. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns, right, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. You hear her crying out. Or the other we just sang. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou, out, thou art, desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Right, you get the feel of Israel's hunger and her anguish for the Messiah to come, for Jesus Christ to make himself known. And so thus, in Israel's experience, we get a taste of what the Advent season is all about, what this time is all about. A desperate longing a desperate and anxious longing for deliverance. Like a mother giving birth, or like a cancer patient in treatment, like people in darkness anxiously longing for the sunrise. The cosmic mother is, is uh, giving birth is Israel wrestling in anguish to bring forth the Messiah. Yet, Israel is not the only one who finds herself in such a position. In an eerily similar passage, the Apostle Paul tells the church, uh, there's another picture, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Listen to what he says. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly, for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to the corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Again, listen. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for, the adoption, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. It seems, in the apostles' words, as if there is another 
birth to be had. As Israel before her, the church, indeed the whole world, groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. Underneath the immense and terrible pressure of this broken world, we, you and I, the church, we sing Israel's songs. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Burdened by our sin, worn down by our suffering, we too anxiously long and groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the rebirth of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world once again. We too feel that longing. We too feel that heartache crying out for deliverance. Which brings us back around to our present moment. This Advent season, as we are all aware, as the lights are a little less bright, as our homes a little less warm, and our joy a little less full, we have a unique opportunity to get in touch with that longing for the return of Jesus Christ like never before. As we've said, at the heart of Advent is a lack, an ache for something more. And as a normalcy and our traditional customs are taken away from us, do we not feel that now more than ever? A longing, a hunger for things as they should be. And I think we do. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing that we feel that longing. Because longing, after all, is the counterpart of hope. It's the other side of the coin. It's the dark side of the moon. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. We groan within ourselves. Right? We long, we ache, we hunger. Why? Because we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. In other words... There is something far greater that awaits us. And being without it now, not having it, we ache for it. We groan within ourselves because that's what we desire. That's where our heart is set. But listen, when all is well and good, when everything's going as it should be, if this were just a Christmas season like every other, the intensity of that longing would be dulled. We would not feel it like we probably should. Because a person who is satisfied and contented in this world cannot long for something greater. They cannot long for what's to come. They have forgotten, as the Apostle Paul says, that this present life is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. And therefore, they've become accustomed to and comfortable in this world. Their hunger pains for something greater have been dulled by the riches and worries and pleasures of this life. They do not ache for deliverance because they no longer sense their need. They don't sing and cry out, come thou long expected Jesus, because things are going nice and well in this world. And so longing and groaning sound strange and distasteful to them because their outlook is bound to this world. Therefore, 
as I've been saying, the veiled blessing of this Advent season under the long shadow that COVID-19 has cast upon us is that it strips us of all illusion. We're reminded, Lord willing, of greater things to come. We're reminded of the hereafter. And so thus, as this season is all about looking back at Jesus' arrival and then looking forward to his second coming, it's entirely right and proper that we feel a bit of heartache and homesickness, that we have a bit of longing in our hearts. We are to long for Jesus like a wife longs for her husband when he's deployed abroad. We are, long, we are to long for the kingdom of God like a daughter longs for her mother when she's away. We are to long for the coming glory like a traveler longs for his home when he is away. And if a wife does not long for her husband, a daughter for her mother, a traveler for his home, is that not a sign that something is wrong? If Aaron were to leave for some indeterminate amount of time and I'm just going on as normal, is that not a sign that something is wrong in our relationship? Right? We say it feels good to be missed. And it does feel good to be missed. It doesn't feel good to be the person who misses, but it feels good to be missed because we learn that we are loved in the sadness of another. We learn that they love us because of their sadness. And if we never ache or mourn for the advent of the kingdom of God, what does that say about where our hope lies? A little bit of heavenly heartache and earthly mourning are a good thing this Christmas season because it means our heart is set on what's to come. And so therefore, CBC, what we must learn to do is we must learn to long, to long for something more. Or to put it even more concretely and even a little bit better is to say that we must learn to hope as we settle our hope entirely on the coming day of Jesus Christ, longing is inevitable. Right? As we fix our eyes toward that, of course we're going to be longing in this world. Once we've tasted the powers of the age to come, nothing in this world will satisfy our appetite. Having tasted the first fruits of the Spirit, we yearn for the entire harvest. It's as if our thirst has been roused, our hunger has been awakened, and we will not be satisfied until we partake of the fullness of salvation, until, until we sit with Christ and all our brothers and sisters at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so this morning, I don't want to send you away despairing, but longing, not starving, but hungry. Not satisfied, but eager for something more. Because that is what Advent season is all about. Something more. Like the cosmic woman laboring in childbirth. We too labor and cry out for deliverance. And so I'd like to draw things to a close. Um, I'd like to draw things to a close with a few words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, I've been reading his sermons, his Advent sermons, 
this week, and they're just really profound, and I found a lot of things he said to be really pertinent to our time. So anyway, on November 21st, 1943, he wrote a letter from prison saying, a prison cell like this, right, he's writing from his prison, is like a good analogy, is a a good analogy for Advent. One waits, hopes, does this or that, ultimately negligible things, the door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. So the longing and the waiting that we've spoken about, Bonhoeffer says, is like being in a prison cell. We wait and we hope and we cry out for deliverance. We sing our songs, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, thou long-expected Jesus, because we cannot open the cell. It can only be opened from the outside. And what we can do, Bonhoeffer says, are only negligible things, right? We can't bring about salvation on our own. There's no use in trying to pick the lock or to squeeze between the bars. One can only resolve themselves to wait for the key master. And I think of what the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 He says, you know, you've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And he says, and to wait for his son from heaven. All of their life is summed up in that one word. To wait for his son from heaven. We don't have the key. The Lord Jesus has the key to death and Hades. And he has to unlock it. Therefore, until the son of God returns to release us from our prison cells, we... In the words of Psalm 37, verse 4, we must rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. We must, in the words of Isaiah 64, verse 1, we must shout, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We must pray, as the Apostle Paul did, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Salvation is of the Lord. And one day, This is our hope. He will come. And on that day, these words will be fulfilled. Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Indeed, let us wait on the Lord. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation.